Hey there! Welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Katie Federal, and at the heart of today's conversation is the third principle of soil health, increasing crop or plant diversity. Doug Voss and Kent Solberg, two members of SFA's soil health team and farmers themselves, are back to consider the value of plant diversity in their own pastures and the exponential environmental and animal performance benefits that they see. They've got a little advice on a few different methods for building diversity in your own pastures, so let's get to it. Hi again, Kent and Doug. Hi, Katie. Hello. So we got increasing crop diversity as one of SFA's five principles of soil health. What does that look like in your pastures? Well, we're striving to get as much plant diversity in our pastures as possible. Um, We think that benefits the animals. We think it benefits soil microbes, just the function of the whole system. If we look at native prairie systems and even just most of our native plant communities across North America, historically, they were highly diverse. They were highly functional. Uh, They were cycling nutrients. They were able to handle water. They were able to withstand drought. Uh, Estimates on the number of um, prairie plants out there were anywhere from 160 to 200 plants on on many, many patches of prairie. Uh, It included all the plant functional groups, which is uh, grasses, um, forbs or broadleaves, and and legumes. Uh, Each of those playing a different but vital and important role in that. And so we're trying to mimic that on our pastures as much as possible, not only through planting, but even more importantly, by stimulating the latent seed bank uh, through grazing management. In other words, creating those environmental conditions in the soil that allow those seeds that have been lying there dormant for many, 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 many years uh, an opportunity to germinate and express themselves as and adding to the diversity of our pastures. So when we look at diversity, we think of it as a good thing. And in this situation, I'd like to say that there's an exception to the rule that you can't have too much of a good thing. I don't know that you can have too much diversity in your pastures. And you know, with the question, Katie, that you asked, what does it look like in our pastures? Um, I'll tell you more what I'd like to look. What I would like it to look like because. Again, we have to remind ourselves that we're working with a degraded system. And so management in the past has put us to where we are today, or at least has had an effect on it. And so in our pastures, you know, we're striving to have more diversity. And that diversity is not only diversity at one time, but diversity over a season or even multiple seasons. And like Kent said, when, we, when we're looking at managing for diversity and we're using our rest periods with our cattle or livestock impacts on those places that we can tap into that latent seed bank. And some of those things don't necessarily have to always persist once they're established. You know, if they're going to be something that's going to fit the conditions that that season has to offer, that's all right. Um, But we want to look, you know, jungle-like out there. We want diversity of low plants, of high plants, and everything in between. We want a a vast array of solar collectors out there doing their part to harvest that sunlight and the microbes in the soil converting that, you know, raw material, that geology to a plant storable form and available for our livestock so they can thrive. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about what crop diversity does for the grazing animals? How does it help them thrive? So our livestock, when they're out grazing, they're going to bulk up on maybe just a few different species out there. 
But work from Dr. Fred Prevents and others has demonstrated that our grazing animals, if given the opportunity in any given day, will select from 30 to even up to 75 different plants. Now, they might just take a little bite of this or a little bite of that. Why would they do that? Well, what they're after are the phytochemicals or the photosynthetic uh, produced chemicals that individual plant species have, some more than others. Um, some have more tannins, some have more alkaloids, uh, and animals need some of each of these. Uh, we, we've, we've built most of our livestock rations around a mean or an average, and yet if we look at scatter plots of, of where different things are around an average, very few of those uh, organisms hit land on the mean. They're on one side or the other, but the bulk of them are centered in or around the mean. Where many of us are familiar with the bell-shaped curve and that's where that comes from. Um, but not everybody's at the same place at the same time. You might have animals at different stage of lactation, different stages of gestation, you know, just like people. Some days we're, we're a bit more on our game and some days we're a bit off. Uh, our game. We're not feeling so well, so so well on a given day. Maybe we need more vitamin A or more vitamin D or more vitamin C or more zinc or more boron or whatever in our diet. Animals are the same, but they have basically a feedback mechanism in their digestive system and going back to their brain that help them pick some of this out and and select for that. And it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and some of that carries over into human nutrition. We're told to eat a diverse diet, uh, lots of different, uh, everything from nuts and berries, fruits and vegetables, you know, proteins, carbohydrates in our diet, we're supposed to mix it up. We're, we're not just supposed to eat Doritos every day, for example. So uh, that's not very good for us. And, and we shouldn't be feeding our livestock that because they're all at a different point. And so by, by, by having that diversity out there, giving them the opportunity to select, we find that our animal performance goes up, our animal health goes up, we have a lot less problems. And not to put veterinarians out of business, but we see the whole veterinarian, uh, 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 our local veterinarian a whole lot less. Some people haven't seen a veterinarian on their farm for years when they focused on plant diversity and allowing these animals to select. A lot of problems we hear about in grazing situations go away when we have plant diversity out there. Plants that are considered to be very toxic for livestock can still exist in our pasture. And yes, they may eat a little of it now and again, uh, but that's, that's, that, that shouldn't hurt them if that wide array of stuff is out there and available for them to, to eat. So the diversity thing really comes into what we call, we refer to epigenetic effect. And so the ability of the animal to self-medicate with some of these different species that can only be done if, the, if those species are available to that animal, um, take care of any parasite issues they have, they can actually do that with certain plant species. And just the importance of having the availability of that vast array of diverse plants for our livestock can't hardly be overstated. And the thing is, is that all these different things like the tannins that Kent referred to and these phytochemicals, these complex compounds that are available in some of these plants that we uh, very often wouldn't even consider them very desirable if we would want to select for what we want to see in our pastures. But to have those things out there allows that 
allows that animal to select it when it needs it and at the right amounts it needs it because these things change. For example, if you take a tea plant and you start to take and remove tea leaves from that tea plant, that tea plant will respond and it will actually put a bitterness in the leaves so that whatever is harvesting or eating that plant won't overeat to the point where that plant will suffer and die. And so those, those you know, levels vary. And quite honestly, you know, with, with as much as work as we're putting into understanding animal nutrition, if we would put the same kind of effort into understanding the importance of diversity in our pastures, we would be likely much further down the road in less time because that animal is going to have this, the sense to, to uh, detect and harvest what it needs at the time if we're allowed. Now that's maybe going to be the exception if that historically the an animal hasn't had adequate diversity available to them, they could overdose on something or other. Um, could it be serious? Yes, it could be serious, but that just puts more weight and value to the ability of that animal to select its diet from the diversity that we're after. Similarly, what does crop diversity do for the environment and for your land? So when we have plant diversity out there, we, we want to see examples in all the, all the different uh, plant functional groups. Grasses, both warm and cool season. Uh, legumes are nitrogen fixers and forbs are what some people call broadleaves. Those functional groups are, and, and, and the wide array of diversity are, point, are, are important for stimulating diversity in the soil microbe populations. For example, mycorrhizal fungi, just super important from a soil health standpoint for building soil aggregation and for even mining um, nutrients uh, uh, from the parent material or from rocks, if you will, the geology uh, and making that not only plant, but even uh, livestock and human available from a nutritional standpoint. Um, there are certain micro, there are mycorrhizal fungi are tied to only certain species. So certain species of mycorrhizal fungi have a con, uh, an association with only certain plant species. The more diversity we have out there, the more resiliency we build. And it's not a linear impact, it's an exponential impact. And so this higher level of diversity gives us exponentially greater environmental benefits. Um, when we build soil aggregate structure, uh, we now build the ability to handle heavy rainfall events. Events We build both macro and micro pores. Those micro pores holding much tighter water in the soil, but also making it more available during extended periods of drought to the plant. Uh, just absolutely critical. The ability uh, to handle traffic ability, even from our livestock, so they're not uh, uh, tearing up a site if it's a little too wet. It, it has a spongy nature to it and not a brick uh, that turns slimy when it gets water on it. So our animals can traverse it with a lot less potential for, for damage out there. In turn, uh, what does this mean? It means better water quality downstream. It means better water quality in your surface water for your animals. It means better water quality in your, your own farm well. Uh, that's out there. Um, huge, huge uh, environmental impacts just from that alone. We're cycling nutrients better. We're not having runoffs of phosphorus uh, and, and nitrogen uh, into our water or seeping into our water system. It's being tied up. And so as we build diversity, we're building all this in. Uh, as nutrients are cycling correctly, uh, we have less quote unquote weed problems out there. Uh, than we would if we weren't cycling 
nutrients correctly. And so there's just a host of benefits uh, that spin off into, as we were talking about earlier, livestock performance. And that positive livestock performance creates a better food product for us as humans, whether that's meat, milk, or eggs. Uh, for us, it's, it's going to be much more nutrient-dense food. Um, there's some really good documentation uh, coming out on everything from um, balancing fatty acid levels to um, just micronutrient levels uh, in, inside of those uh, foods coming from highly diverse systems. You know, if there's a nutshell to take away with diversity is looking at the at the parallelism, if, if you enhance diversity and you could focus on that exponential effect that two plus two doesn't equal four anymore, it equals eight or nine or 10. And you can apply that to your uh, financial return on investment if you're a farm, uh, that should be enough to encourage you to pursue diversity in your operation. Because as you do, resiliency of challenging situations is gonna be just improved drastically. And you'll be able to hard, you know, weather the harder times and you'll be able to even take advantage of the better times with your management if you look at diversity in an operation and, and consider diversity. Now, good diversity can be different for different people. You know, uh, for somebody that's used to only growing one or two crops on their farm, diversity change might be adding a third or even a fourth crop. But if you look at nature and how nature has, you know, thrived until the industrial era when we decided to uh, have our impact on things and not always in the positive, you know, it wasn't uncommon to have hundreds, um, hundreds of different plant species in a prairie setting, for example, and they all work together and they all have their own role to play. So I just encourage people to be thinking very broadly when they're thinking about what they'd like to see in diversity in their pastures and what they might be able to strive for. Ah, uh, yeah, you're reminding me of a class I took in college on conservation biology. We did a lot of field trips out to local prairie land. We were down in the southeast region of Minnesota, and we were counting species, and we would see the same common few plant species at each site, and definitely noticed that the healthier looking areas, the prairies that had been more restored, those had a much richer diversity of plant life. And then also we would excitingly get to see some species that we hadn't come across yet. So that said, are there any plant varieties in Minnesota in particular that could work really well on just about anybody's pasture? So first and foremost, you know, what can we do to change the management out there? Um, just changing stock density and length of recovery period between grazing events can go a long way um, to increasing diversity. And so first and foremost, that's, that can be absolutely huge. Um, there, there are other species we can use uh, Timothy, you know, lots of seeds in a pound, a small amount of that grows on many, many soil types. It's pretty cheap. A quarter to a half pound an acre uh, can be a cheap way to add some diversity on many sites. The clovers, particularly red clover, um, alfalfa, and even adding, adding different varieties of the same species uh, can go a long way to building diversity. Um, some species are going to work better on heavier soils, other better on lighter soils. We find that on heavier clay type soils, we have more opportunities on things to work with. Um, on lighter soils, um, uh, we, have, we have less stuff. Um, some of that's also related to pH, um, but it doesn't mean we can't try things. You know, as, as we were talking about earlier, 
the changes aren't linear, they're exponential. And we find with some of these very diverse sites, there's stuff growing on it that's like, you shouldn't be growing here. You know, this is not normal for you. And yet it's such a huge game changer and creates, um, I guess, a more positive environment for that, that species that a lot of times we can see that. Um, we're even adding now uh, to perennial pasture mixes um, some of the native species that work well in a, in a more conventional type drill uh, for seeding them. Um, slender wheatgrass, witchgrass, um, intermediate wheatgrass, uh, some of these other species, it's not very, very hard to add it. They don't have the fluffy uh, uh, ons on them like big blue stem, little blue stem, uh, Indian grass. Uh, they work in a conventional drill. They work in other mixes. We can blend those in. And so now we're adding some warm season grasses to the mix. And as we start experimenting with more of these, along with adaptive grazing uh, to stimulate those, um, we could really, really get uh, some, from, from our perspective, a high degree of diversity in there. We're not where we're at with native prairie. That could be done, it can be done. It's a bit expensive. Excuse me, some of those um, uh, native forbs and legumes and even some of the grasses are very, very expensive. Um, but the ones that can work, we keep looking for those and creating opportunities to use those in, in perennial pasture blends to increase our diversity out there. And, and, and let's not ignore things that come in on their own. Curly dock, dandelion, uh, even, even quack grass, Kentucky bluegrass, smooth brome, as long as it's not dominated by that, and if we're doing a good job of managing, it shouldn't be, even the woody species, you know, a little bit of willow, a little bit of snowberry, a little bit of choke cherry, a little bit of service berry out there. That's absolutely fine because they fill an ecological niche that uh, the more herbaceous or the more um, vegetative species uh, don't don't fill out there. And so we can do that. And that's that's the beauty of things like agroforestry and silvopasture. Uh, we add that woody component to the pasture to increase that diversity to a whole nother level. And it, 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 it can also be things that maybe the cattle aren't necessarily, you know, isn't real high on their forage list, but we do it in a small amount just from a diversity standpoint for all the other benefits that can be reaped from that. You know, I think it's so key to understand that you know, different plants are going to offer so many different benefits at different times. And so, uh, you know, just having that availability out there again is going to provide those opportunities and it's going to provide some buffer with, uh, you know, just with management and approaching when we're trying to optimize livestock performance and uh, do that as in a big of a window as possible, especially when we're trying to you know, work with the challenges that the weather sometimes gives us. And so, you know, make sure that we are continually uh, making a hospitable environment for diversity and, and not overdoing it on how much we take when we graze. Um, excessive trample, some of these other things um, can certainly affect that diversity. But um, yeah, and it just makes for such good products that come off the land. You know, Katie, recently Doug and I were working together on a project. Uh, it's an oak savanna restoration project at Sherburne National Wildlife Refuge. And we were on the ground for five very full days working with a group of about 100 um, uh, 
stocker cattle, uh, I guess would be the best way to call it. There's some two-year-olds and some yearlings uh, in the group there. And we ran these animals through some sites that I think a lot of livestock people would have really raised their eyebrows and questioned what we were doing. Uh, and yet we watched these cattle um, eating chokecherry, eating hazelbrush, eating aspen, uh, eating oak leaves, um, uh, along with grasses and forbs. It wasn't all they had available. They weren't locked in there all the time. We had them in there for short periods of time, but there was something about that diversity in what they had access to and they were eating that was highly attractive to them. And then they went down to a site that was heavy to reed canary grass. So we went from something high in tannins to high in alkaloids. And, and there's research out there uh, suggesting that when we balance those things, animals can utilize both of them um, very effectively and very efficiently uh, and balance their system out and it can work quite well. Where if we just put them out on a pasture that was all reed canary grass that's high and it tends to be high in alkaloids unless it's been um, a variety where it's been bred out of um, they're not going to perform out there very well for very long just like if we just stuck them in the in the woods with just hazel brush they're not going to perform on that if that's all they had available but when we offered this variety to them throughout the day and throughout the time we were there it was very very interesting watch what they ate and sometimes with great relish uh we we turned them out on a little peninsula under these high stock densities and that stock density really changes their behavior on what they eat and they were eating things that it's like you would never think they'd ever touch it yet there, there was something of value there at low amounts um that that was important to those animals uh health and well-being you know, Kent, I think it'd be important to point out too, you know, working with those livestock, it's like, it's not that they were put in a situation where they had to eat. Uh, you know, these yearlings that we were working with, these stalkers, they, um, they always had excellent gut fill. Uh, you know, animal performance was one of our, our uh, key focuses in that endeavor. And so uh, these animals willingly selected these different products, these different species of, of plants. And um, and not because they had to. And, uh, you know, it's going to make a difference, I think, too, uh, on availability. And, um, you know, if these animals have had access to these types of plants before, or if it's something new, and it fills a need at that time for that, that animal. And uh, I think just, I just want to encourage people that are looking at integrating livestock into different scenarios of different environments, that, uh, you know, observation is still so important. And we can learn so much from the animals that are put on different situations and, and surrounded by different plant species, because uh, as things change, we should take advantage and, and learn from it. Absolutely. And I think, I think our time there also, you know, these are all animals that have experienced a lot of these different forages before. And just to point out that, yes, grazing to some degree is... Uh, an instinctive behavior with ruminants, but it's also a learned behavior. And they learn best uh, at the side of their mother 
um, that learning actually begins. There's evidence that that learning actually begins in the womb before they're even born. And so a cow or a ewe that's out on diverse pasture selecting from these different things is beginning to transmit that knowledge, if you will, uh, to her young. Uh, when that calf or that lamb is born, they're following mom around, they're trying things that mom's doing, and they're also observing and watching what their herd, herd or flock mates are eating. So um, there is learning there. Um, you know, we, we've, many of us have heard the story of uh, the Jersey or the Holstein who has been hand fed uh, her entire life. And all of a sudden the farmer's like, oh, I wanna try this grazing thing. And, and uh, all this cow's really gotten is, uh, you know, corn silage, uh, alfalfa, some soybean meal and some mineral uh, their whole life. And they're put out in a pasture and some of those animals struggle in that situation. You would think they'd just put their head down and go to town, but uh, some of them just stand there because you didn't cut it and bring it to them. Um, we've trained them. Our, our, our management has trained them not to be grazers. And so, you know, if, if we want to use grazing again in some of these situations, we have to rebuild that in over time. But uh, the, the, the big point is, is it's not only grazing is not only an innate or instinctive behavior, it's also a learned behavior. And we were at, at, at Sherburn there working with a group of cattle in that project that had been exposed uh, to a lot of these feeds before. Uh, had had learned that this is something that's okay to eat and they took right to it. And so um, that's that's important piece of this also. I had a chuckle, Kent, when you were talking about learned, uh, you know, uh, classical conditioning with livestock as we just broke, a, we just turned out some custom animals on our farm a week ago. And, you know, so these animals are, they've been used to being fed in a fence line situation. So they've been putting their heads through uh, you know, pipes, bars, petitions, whatever, to get at the feed for months. And then until we had uh, charged, put the electrical charger on the perimeter fence, we had about four of them lined up that had their heads between two <laughs> strings of wire on the high tensile fence until we plugged it in. And they still had to go back two or three times because they didn't understand what was happening. They were waiting for the somebody to roll along with the feed cart. And That's right. And, yes. and, and it hurt a couple of times before they, they caught on. Well, I guess we're going to have to go find our forage someplace else. Somewhere else. It's not, it's not between some bars or some wires. That's right. That's right. So we can, you know, we could affect classical conditioning with our animals for sure. And, uh, and affect things with way we typically be doing things without a second thought at times. So we've talked a lot about the value of pasture plant diversity. Where could someone start if they're looking to increase theirs on their farm? You know, that's a great question, Katie. And I always like to think about how a farm can mimic nature. And so the first thing I always look at if I want to try to, you know, push diversity on an operation is how can I use my grazing management to facilitate tapping into the latent seed bank? And so we always like to talk about switching things up as far as the duration of rest periods or the length of rest periods. But once we get to 80 days or more, typically, we can start tapping into the latent seed bank. And when I say 80 days, I mean 80 days of recovery. And so it's also important to understand the distinguishing difference between rest and recovery. We actually have to have growing season conditions for recovery period. And so once we can stretch these, these grazings out a bit, and it doesn't have to be across the whole operation, it can be a portion of the operation, it can be a portion of a paddock. We can skip a paddock, for example, when we're coming through a piece. 
But um, then we're going to start to see that we're facilitating a change of an environment below those animals and in that biology to start providing the conditions for some of these seeds that have been laying there for a very, very long time to, uh, to start to, to find the conditions that they can not only germinate, but thrive. And so you, could, you can potentially see diversity coming about with uh, less than 80 days, and I have on my own farm, but that's just kind of one of those benchmarks to consider when we're looking at the rest periods and uh, facilitating that without um, looking at putting seeds in the ground that may not have the conditions fit for them to, uh, to flourish. And that can be a costly situation when we're kind of guessing at, at the scenarios of the situation we might have with our soil conditions. So um, altering those grazing rest periods, uh, recovery periods, and uh, lengthening them out, even if it means a small portion of the farm can go a long ways when we're trying to facilitate the increase of diversity in our plant species. Yeah, Katie, first, first and foremost, what Doug just covered, um, we, we consider that paramount and, and addressing that, those management activities uh, are gonna go a long way. Uh, if a person wants to go to the next step, and these are, these are the things I get questions on all the time about how can I go in and seed this stuff. And I just wanna touch a little bit on some of these techniques uh, that are out there. Um, frost seeding or stomp seeding. Frost seeding is when uh, we go out and broadcast uh, some seed um, late winter. Uh, oftentimes this is done when there's snow on the ground with a broadcast seeder. Uh, this can be on the back of an ATV, the back of a tractor or one slung around your shoulder on uh, just walking out there. But with the snow on the ground, you can see where you spread seed as it melts, um, it works. Frost seeding tends to work best under heavy clay soils during that spring thaw or that freeze thaw action during the spring. If we can do it where we're outwintering animals and an opportunity to stomp some of that seed in the ground, um, that can work well. We could, I, I think there's some opportunity even to do it in the late fall. Um, our best opportunity for frost seedings in addition to the heavy ground is also going to be where if we're out in our pasture and we look down and we see patches of bare ground um, to help fill in those patches a little quicker to provide some diversity. What works well in frost seeding, the clovers, red and white clover, first and foremost, bird's foot trefoil can be an option. Timothy might be an option. Um, I've done some frost seeding uh, with some orchard grass out there. That seems to work pretty good. Uh, you might even be able to do a little tiny bit of switchgrass. Any of the more hard seeded um, type plants, it can work. Um, another option that's out there that's pretty kind of low tech if you're doing it anyway, is if you've got pack manure that you've turned a couple times in the spring and after uh, the first time over grazing uh, in let's say June, um, if you're gonna go out and spread pack manure on that recently grazed paddock, Take a coffee can or so full of uh, uh, red clover or bird's foot or white clover and throw right on top of that uh, manure, that, that spreader load of manure and spread it with that. Uh, it can be very cheap. You only need a couple pounds an acre at the very most, maybe a pound an acre. Same with the frost seeding, only a couple, we only need a couple pounds an acre, but spread it out there. Uh, if that clover seed finds conditions under some of that compost or landing on a manure pat or whatever it can take off and get established, that can provide some diversity out there. Um, be a little cautious on putting legumes out there. Uh, there's some evidence now that 
we maybe have been using legumes too much in some of our pasture mixes. Uh, a lot of our native stands only had 10 to 20% legume of the total diversity of species out there. There's a lot of recommendations out there for 30 to 50% of our stand being legume as a way to fix nitrogen. Um, but the assumption there is that's the only place plants get nitrogen. As we have plant diversity out there and stimulate better biology, plants are getting nitrogen through that system also. I'm not gonna wade deep in the weeds and all the technicals of that right now, but uh, there's some there we have a tendency to overuse or overplay the nitrogen card, I think, and that can be to the detriment of our soil biology. The last thing I want to talk about is, is no-tilling something in, and I get asked this a lot um, on, on using a no-till drill. And there's some things we're seeing over time from experience that uh, to determine if this is going to work or not. Again, are we seeing a thin stand out there? Is there a lot of bare ground? Um, we're going to need to stress the existing stand in order to do that. And we need to think about this a year in advance. A lot of people call me in April or March and say, oh, I got a weak stand out there. I want to no-till something in it. It's too, I think it's too late. Uh, and I'm speaking from experience and from the experience of others. If we just stress this stand in the spring, it's not enough. Um, you're, if we try to no-till another little seed into an existing stand of forage that's out there, it just can't compete. The first rain, the first fertility, the first sunlight that hits that, that established plant is just going to roar right past that little seedling. It's just not going to be able to compete for light, moisture, and, and nutrients. We need to stress that stand the fall before and again in the spring. We need to stress it at least twice on both ends of, this, uh, of the season. And that's something people miss. Um, I've seen too many situations where we've only stressed it in the spring, the seed was put in the ground, and very little of it was seen. Unless there's a huge amount of bare ground out there, then we have a lot bigger problems out there. The only place I can think of where um, it might work best is if we're turning an old alfalfa hay field into a pasture and we want to introduce some diversity and we have very low alfalfa stem densities out there. So there's some opportunity there. Also the type of cedar we use. There's some indications that a T-slot uh, no-till drill um, creates a better seed bed and better opportunity for integrating um, other species in there. Um, versus a slot uh, type no-till drill. Uh, it just creates a better opportunity. Again, we still have to stress uh, that existing stand for any hope of this happening. It's not a cheap thing to do. You got machinery costs, you got seed costs, you got fuel costs, you got labor costs, um, and yet a lot of people continually want to jump to that. Again, we encourage folks to go back to what Doug talked about altering that animal management, managing the rest periods out there, managing stock densities. Um, you can see a lot of benefits there uh, without dropping a lot of money. I guess one thing I'd add too is that uh, the cheapest spreaders you've got out there or cedars are the cattle or the livestock themselves. And so uh, I know a number of producers now that are mixing seeds right with minerals and uh, I've been really surprised at some of the results that they've had. And not just having plant uh, populations where cow pies might land, but 
uh, actually fairly well distributed across the pasture. And so, um, you know, some of the legumes and, and some of the grasses, uh, you know, not necessarily a cereal, but um, some of these small seeded things that, uh, you know, the digestive tract of, of livestock uh, doesn't kill a bull. And so for very little investment, you could do some experimentation that way if you're interested. Yeah, I really, really want to reinforce the seed being not treated. Uh, when you're going to run it through your animals, that's just important for animal health. Another option would be um, buying some uh, quality dry hay that was put up a little more mature, particularly if it's got orchard grass, alfalfa, red and white clover in it. Uh, if there's viable seed in there, um, bale grazing or unrolling bales on a site is another way um, to introduce some diversity. Uh, out on that site. Uh, I've seen it uh, numerous times um, where those species uh, uh, can get started out there and add some diversity to the stand just by bale grazing some uh, hay that was put up at a more mature state. Yeah, absolutely, Kenton. You know, some of these situations where we've got restrictions and when hay could be made on some acres can really fit in well, uh, whether it be maybe uh, road ditches or um, maybe a government owned land that uh, allows hay making certain times of year, even certain programs where it may not be considered the optimum nutritional time from a hay perspective, but taking advantage of those opportunities to selectively harvest that crop for that purpose of just diversity. Because some plants that are growing in those conditions are, are extremely hardy and, uh, and the best of what you want to select from when you're trying to introduce those seeds into a new environment. Well, that's plenty of food for thought for folks to start increasing um, plant diversity in their pastures. Thanks, guys. Always learn a lot from you. You're welcome, Katie. Thanks. Good to be with you. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org. Oh, I just blanked. What was the... Okay, yes. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs>